Well, good morning. How are y'all doing? That was okay. That was pretty good. Y'all doing good? That was a little better. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We had a great day yesterday with our volunteers. Just a big thank you to our volunteers for all that you do serving here at Chandler Drive Baptist Church, and I hope that you enjoyed that yesterday. I enjoyed hanging out with y'all, and uh, we, uh, we have some things coming up. I uh, hope that you're marking your calendar. We have uh, Family Lake Day coming up. That's going to be an exciting day. Uh, with as, as disconnected as we felt throughout 2020, uh, we put some stuff on the calendar. We're just going to go have fun and hang out. And so sign up for that. Uh, there were um, 100 spots available for that, and 96 of them filled up last Sunday. But just hang tight. At the end of the service, there may be some good news for you there. All right. We also want to uh, make you aware that next week we're going to be um, celebrating our graduates. And I want to uh, encourage you to be here, to, uh, to honor them. And, and I'm listing off some stuff that's coming up, uh, some dates that are important. Um, but none of the things that I've listed off, as important as they are, none of us would argue that they're going to impact all of human history. Is that right? Of course not, right? They're important. We look forward to them. Uh, but there are dates, there are days that do, right? There are dates that do. Uh, if you were to uh, ask the question, what are some of the most important dates in the history of the world that have shaped human history, like dates that we stop and think about, st- dates that we stop and reminisce about, I wonder what you would say. Now, if I was younger, I would give you some different answers than I give you right now, right? If you'd asked me that when I was like eight or nine years old, I probably said, my birthday, that's important. Uh, Christmas, that's a good date. Uh, that impacts the history of the world, uh, I would have probably told you a date that I had memorized when I was eight years old, and it was April the 1st, 1990. Now, that doesn't ring a bell with some of you in the room, uh, but that was an important date for me because that was uh, the date that in Ontario, Canada, in the Sky Dome, 73,000 people in attendance, WrestleMania six, that my hero, Hulk Hogan, got taken down by the Ultimate Warrior, all right? My dad got me the VHS tape. Uh, we brought it home. I watched that thing. It was just crushed. I might have had a little tear well up in my eye where I rewound it and watched it a few times, hoping the outcome would be different, right? That impacted my little world, right? But of course, you get older and things like that uh, really don't matter that much. And you realize there are actually dates that have shaped human history in some monumental ways. You know, we think of July 4th, 1776. Uh, December 7th, 1941, uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. We actually know the time, the exact time that first bomb was dropped. That was a moment that shaped uh, human history. More recent memory, 9-11. I bet you most of us in the room can remember where we were at on that day. Remember who we were with for most of that day. Where we were watching those images on a TV on that day. That memory is like right there, isn't it? It's like right there with us. Why? Because that was a day that we knew in that moment was a game changer in human history. It was a day that we would always remember. We knew the world in many ways wouldn't be the same. We just lived through a year like this. 2020 will be a year that will change a lot of things in human history. It is a year that people will be talking about three or four centuries from now. And we just lived through it, right? So there are years like that. There are moments like that in human history. Um, and I wonder what your list would look like if I said, come up with a list of five to ten uh, events in, in world history and human history that have shaped that, that history. What would you come up with? Now, even if you're not a believer, even if you're not a Christian, you would have to put the birth of Christ in the top five. You'd have to. It's, we're counting by the birth of Christ right now. You know, 2021 years away from what? right? Something big went down, all right? If you're a Christian, you're going to put not just his birth, you're going to put the death and resurrection of Christ at the top of your list, right? And then I think under that, many of us would agree, you put Pentecost there, the Holy Spirit came into the first believers as a Christian with a biblical worldview. And then what's next though? What would be the next thing on the list that it would be the next most important event in all of human history? I believe it's what we're about to study this morning in Acts chapter 9. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Stand with your Bibles open. Acts chapter 9, beginning to read in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if any found 
that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who you were traveling with, or who, uh, the men who were traveling uh, with him, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. This is a different Ananias than the one we studied earlier. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he has prayed, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias responded, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him. uh, He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, he has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Would you have a seat as I pray? God, we know that your word is powerful, God. We know that you communicate us to us primarily through it. And Lord, we know that when we open it and we seek to cut it straight and divide it properly, that you always speak. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand your word as we seek to do just that, that you protect this room from this man's opinion, that your spirit would take control of the service. This is not about us. This is all about you. So, Lord, I pray that you would have your way in this time together as we get into your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this chapter in the Bible. It's probably one of my favorites, Acts chapter 9. Many of you are familiar with it. If not, uh, really pay attention, lean in, and I think you'll be blessed as we walk through this together. Uh, But I really like it because it reminds me where the Apostle Paul came from. Because as you study the life of the Apostle Paul and all the great things that God accomplished through him, you tend to have moments where you stop and wonder, like, what in the world do I have in common with this guy? All right, this is like a giant of the faith. He's a missionary, he's a pastor, a church planner. He directed a massive global missions agency and church planning movement that impacted the history of the world. Right? He was instrumental in the church being established in Europe, which became the staging ground through which the gospel would advance and go out to the entire world, including this part of the world. So we're sitting here, and the impact that the gospel's made here in many of your lives with the church that's sitting here, it can be traced back, of course, to what Jesus did on the cross, but through the endeavors, the mission endeavors of the apostle Paul. So we think about him as a missionary. We think about him as a theologian and an author, the New Testament that hopefully you, you have at your disposal right now. You have the Old Testament. That's the first half of the Bible. And then you have the New Testament. That's the second half of the Bible. And in the New Testament, you have 27 books. And of those 27 books, 13 of them were written by the Apostle Paul. So I've, you've heard it said before that Paul wrote, mess, wrote, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. That's actually not true. All right. So if, you, if uh, Luke authored Luke in Acts, which we believe he did, uh, in those two books, there's more there than there is in uh, all 13 of uh, Paul's books put together. A lot of short books there. But it's more correct to say this. He wrote the most books in the New Testament. It's still an incredible fact. Another fun fact about him, uh, it has to do with his name. Is he Paul or is he Saul? Some of you are new to church and you're like, is he talking about Saul or Paul? He keeps saying Saul, keeps saying Paul. Which one? Who is he talking about? Is that two different guys? Same guy, all right? In Acts, let me explain it. In Acts, the person that we come to know as Paul for the second half of Acts and for the rest of the New Testament, for the first half of Acts, up to Acts 13, he's referred to as Saul of Tarsus. And you'll hear me use Saul and Paul interchangeably. I'll go back and forth. But I'm talking about the same guy. And you'll hear people say this. You know, I've even said this before, mistakenly. Well, Saul Tarsus, he he got saved on the road to Damascus, and God changed his name to Paul. That's actually not in the Bible. That's not there. You can't find it. All right? So likely he always had both names. All right? 
and would have responded to both names. Saul was his Hebrew name, all right, given to him at birth. It was a very prestigious name. In that Hebrew culture, your name mattered. Like your name carried weight. So when he said he was Saul, people would have immediately connected that with the tribe of Benjamin. With the, he was, they would have put two and two together. They was probably named after the first king of Israel, which was Saul. And so it carried a lot of prominence with it. Uh, but he was also from a town, a Roman town called Tarsus, which means he was a Roman citizen. So he got to enjoy a privilege that not a lot of Jews got to enjoy. He was a Jew, but he was also a Roman citizen. And his Roman name was Paul. So it's just simply a Roman name, Paul. In the Hebrew form of that name is Saul. And in Acts chapter 13... He starts going by Paul, not because I believe that God, not because God changed his name, but I believe because he largely started to minister to the Gentile world, which I think is a much cooler reason for him to change his name and refer to himself or have other people refer to him as Paul. You know what that means? It means he laid down the privilege of a really great name that would have carried with it a lot of weight and a lot of respect connected to a lot of rich heritage to take up a Roman name. That wouldn't have carried as much weight in order for him to do better ministry in the Gentile world. That's pretty cool. And that's exactly what he did. He preached the gospel all over the place. He planted churches all over the place. He trained young pastors all the time. Went on three different missionary journeys, like epic missionary journeys. On every one of them, he about lost his life. Just ran into all kinds of trouble, all kinds of challenges, all kinds of persecution and suffering. Got shipwrecked, got snake bitten, got stoned, left for dead, whipped, thrown in prison uh, for preaching the gospel. And the dude just keeps trucking. He just keeps preaching the gospel. You can't hold him down. He's like some kind of sanctified first century version of Chuck Norris, right? Just throw whatever you have at him. He's just going to keep roundhouse kicking you in the face with the gospel over and over and over again. Eventually, he makes his way from Jerusalem up to Rome where he's beheaded. Uh, for being a Christian after years and years and years of fruitful ministry, after God using him to make this enormous dent in this world for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the sake of the gospel. Under Christ, of course, beneath Christ, he's the most paramount, central, most prominent figure in all the New Testament church. And we're left thinking, what in the world do I have in common with this guy? You actually have a lot more in common than you realize. Because what we realized this morning is this, that he was a really big sinner in need of a really big savior. That's what we have in common with the apostle Paul. Let me ask you this morning, have you ever done anything sinful? Do you have a list of things you can think about, embarrassing things that you hope nobody ever finds out about? Parts of your life that, you know, you are ashamed of, that are true about you, that you have left behind you maybe in a town that you grew up in and you hope nobody that you know now that you've met this part of your life ever goes back to that town and runs into anybody that knew you then. Have you ever done anything sinful? It's a rhetorical question. Don't raise your hand. We don't want like confession time in here this morning. But of course, all of us would say yes, yes. We all look at our rear view mirror and we have a pile of those things that we, that we regret, right? Which means we have a lot more in common with the Apostle Paul than we may realize. We've already seen the evil that, the, uh, that Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who will become the Apostle Paul, has been inflicting in Jerusalem, right? We have already read about how he's ravaging the church, church in Jerusalem, how he's caused the church to scatter and to go out, and God's using that. They're scattering, doing what they were supposed to do in the first place, and they're going out and they're preaching the gospel. And so Saul's not, he's not uh, you know, satisfied with just shutting, trying to shut down the cause of Christ in Jerusalem. He sees that it's spreading, so he's taking his show on the road. And at the beginning of chapter 9, here he's setting out, think about this, because of what God's going to do in the future. He's setting out here at the beginning of Saul of Tarsus, this murderer this prideful, this self-righteous sinner, he's setting out on this global mission trip to arrest and to kill Christians. But what he doesn't know is that the focus of his global mission efforts are going to dramatically change here in a few minutes as he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. So I want to, I want to walk through this narrative real quickly and just kind of walk through what we just read and uh, hit on a couple things. And then I want to give you three takeaways. I want to give you three things that we learn as we look at the conversion of Saul that are true about our salvation as well. All right, so let's just walk through this real quick. So it begins by showing us that he goes to these authorities. He goes to the authorities and basically uh, makes a request to get some arrest warrants so they can go out of their jurisdiction and he can capture and drag back to Jerusalem followers of the way. 
so that they would be imprisoned or killed. He will go on later to say that any time he would bring somebody back for trial and death was on the table, he was voting yes for death. This is the kind of guy he was. And as he's traveling, somewhere along that road, as we just read, he gets gloriously blinded by this great light. Later in Acts, we read that he describes the light. He said it was brighter than the sun. And he actually explains later in Acts that he actually saw in that light the resurrected Jesus Christ. So he doesn't just hear him, he actually sees the risen Lord. So do you have a picture in your mind right now? It's, it's an amazing picture of this prestigious, powerful, prideful Saul, the most feared man in all the Christian world, on his knees, on the side of the road, beneath this bright light before a risen Christ, begging for answers. Who are you? The tables have turned. And notice how personally Jesus takes the persecution of his people and the way that he responds to Saul there. He says, why are you persecuting me? That's what Jesus says. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What is Jesus doing right there? He's identifying with his bride. That's an important point that we need to make right here. Notice how Jesus says or asks this. He says, why are you persecuting me? He could have easily said, I, I, I don't know. What I'm going to do doesn't have to do with, with you, Lord. You know, he could have tried to wiggle his way out of it. St. Augustine said this about this moment. He said, this was the head of the body. This is Christ. This is the head of the body in heaven calling down on behalf of the members that were still on earth. You know what that means this morning? It means that if you suffer for the cause of Christ, it means if you feel resistance because of your stance on biblical truth for the glory of Jesus Christ, it means if you feel rejected, if you feel ridiculed, if you ever experience persecution, what Jesus is saying is, listen, they're doing those things to me. You're on the right team. And Jesus is identifying with his bride right here. You know what this also reminds us of is the importance of the bride, of how Jesus values the bride, of how much he loves his church, his assembled local on mission together in fellowship, in community, church that's on this earth at any given time between his resurrection and his return. He loves his bride. This reminds us there's no separation between the love of Jesus and a commitment to his church. He fiercely loves his bride. The question is, do you? He loves the church. The question is, do you? Now, I may be talking to the choir a lot, but there may be somebody here who needs to hear this. You can't say you love Jesus and not like his bride. And I'm not talking about big C. Right? That's a good answer. We should all love the universal church. I'm talking about the church that's laid out in the New Testament of local assemblies that have come together, gathered together, and the banner of it is finished, unified in Christ on the same mission who are working to make an impact in the community where God's placed them and to the ends of the earth. How often do you hear things like this? Man, I don't got any problems with God. It's just church that I can to church people I got some problems with. Right? I'm not... I love Jesus. Me and Jesus are cool. I'm just not a big fan of the church. Sometimes it's boring. Hypocrites down at the church. I'm just not a big fan of church. Here's the problem with that. Scripture calls the church the bride of Christ. You're basically saying, Jesus, I'm cool with you. I love you. I hate your bride. How many of you men would be okay if your friends came up to you and said, hey, man, I like you. I I like to hang out with you. I'm cool with you. I can't stand your wife. Hopefully you would not be okay with that. All right? How many of you ladies would be okay with your husbands being okay with that? None of you, right? So you're going to have some problems with me if you come and say something like that to me. Jesus says, I love my bride. I love the church. Every broken, messed up, work in progress piece of it, which is all of us. Listen, there is no question according to the word of God that's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God that was sent when Jesus, the son of God, ascended to the right hand of God. There is no question according to the word of God that every believer should be plugged in, actively serving, contributing as a member to a local Bible teaching, gospel centered, evangelistic local New Testament church. Doesn't have to be this one. But pick one and give your life in service to your Lord, to the the ministry of that local church. Well, we can only imagine what Saul of Tarsus realizes as he uh, asks, who are you? And from the that light, he hears an answer, I am Jesus. What a powerful moment. By the way, that's a moment that every person who ever breathes the air on this earth, every person in human history will meet a moment when they will realize that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Which means this, and we say it this way here, you can surrender, you can surrender. 
right? You can surrender now. You can bow your knee to him as king now. And you can give him your life and experience forgiveness and experience the abundant life of knowing him and following him. Or you can surrender once this life is over. We highly recommend the first one. It doesn't end well going the second round. But regardless, you're going to surrender. So surrender or surrender. Well, Jesus tells Saul to get up and head to Damascus and the men who are with him, uh, they're kind of helping him up. And I think it's interesting that they can't really understand what's going on. Isn't that true? When you come to Christ, did you experience that? And God's working in your life. You had people around you who didn't really get it, who didn't really understand what Jesus was doing. We see that pictured there. Well, they try their best. They get him uh, a blind Saul now by this light. They lead him into town where he has to stay there for three days, doesn't eat, doesn't drink. I can only imagine what he's thinking about. Is he thinking about what he heard Stephen praying in those last words as he realizes that Stephen, what he said was true. He was following the risen Lord. Is he thinking about those words in the sermon that he heard Stephen preach? Is he thinking about his pride? Is he thinking about his sin? Is he thinking about how he has made a mess of his life and it's all coming down, crashing on top of him? How he's caused so much hurt, so much turmoil. Did you know that biblical scholars believe that the orphan crisis that was going on in Jerusalem during this time was single-handedly caused by him ravaging the church and throwing husbands or fathers and mothers in in jail or having some of them killed. And as he sits there thinking about all the awful things he's done, he's realizing he's, he's, he's wasted his life. I've wasted my entire life. I've given my life to something that's not true. And now he's sitting there, and I can only imagine he's thinking, is there any hope for somebody like me? But God's working, God's preparing a messenger named Ananias, all right? And God comes to Ananias in a vision, and I love how they just start talking, right? I, I'm a little envious of Ananias. They just, it's like he's like, hey, God. Hey, Ananias. Hey, God. He's like, can I pick up where they left off last time? Communicating with God is not always that easy for me. But he's dialed in. He knows who it is. He knows it's God. And God begins to give him instructions. And as, as you read through these instructions, did you feel it? Did you see what happened in Ananias' heart? It's like you can, things are moving, things are going. All of a sudden, you like, you feel the brakes hit and like the tires squeal on the pavement, God comes to him in this vision and says, Ananias, starts off good. Hey, yeah, yeah, God, here I am. It's like a posture of submission, a phrase that means here I am, I'm surrendered. I, whatever you want me to do, God, Ananias has his little notebook out. Maybe he's done this before. He seems so comfortable with it. He's like, okay, I get to go on a mission. All right, let me get my pen. Tell me what I'm doing, God. And God begins to lay it out. All right, this is what I want you to do. You listen? Yeah, I'm listening, God. You got your pen? I got my pen. All right, I want you to go. Why don't you go to Straight Street? Yeah, Straight Street. Okay, okay. I know where that's at. And I want you to go to Judas's house. Judas. Oh, I think I know. Yeah, yeah, I know him. Judas. Yeah, a little brick house on the corner there. I know exactly what you're talking about. All right, I want you to go there. I want you to find a man from Tarsus. All right, it's a man from Tarsus. All right. And uh, got it, got it. And his name is Saul. Come again? <laughs> his name is Saul. And he's, re- he's received a vision from a na- man named Ananias. And he's going, to, wait, wait, I'm Ananias. Wait, that, that can't be right. Something's wrong here. It's almost like he's in, how often can we do this in our prayer life? We begin to inform God on things that he already is kind of aware of. God, you don't understand that this is a problem. You know, he's like, I don't know if you've been getting the memo. I don't know if the the news channels have been working up in heaven, but Saul's been causing a lot of problems down here. He's been causing a lot of havoc in Jerusalem. There's a, a lot of evil that he's been doing. God, are you sure that you want me to go in and lay hands on him? I don't know if that's a good idea. I think he's probably gonna try to lay hands on me. And I love God's response. He just says, go. He says, go. God doesn't need our excuses. God doesn't need our assessments. He simply asks for our obedience, even when it doesn't make sense. Because he's God. Because he has the entire universe in his hands. He has your life in his hands. He has a good plan. It's kind of like when my kids are not obeying and they're asking questions. And I need you to just go. Just go. I got a better plan than you. My little six-year-old, right? Bro, go brush your teeth and bathe. I don't got to explain why you need to do that, all right? You, you ain't going to have friends if you don't brush your teeth and bathe. Go! Go do it! But God is a little more gracious than that. He gives a, an explanation here to Ananias. He said there's, there's actually something special that's going to happen in Saul's life. And he's going to be used in a really special way. I need you to just go. Go. And in verse 17, Ananias says, all right, and he, 
departs and enters the house and he lays hands on him and he says, Brother Saul, we'll come back to that. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which uh, you, you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I believe the way this is laid out right here, I believe in that house with Ananias, his hands laid on Saul. I believe this is the moment personally that, that Saul, who becomes Paul, throws the weight of his faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and gets saved. In verse 18, it says the scales fall off of his eyes, which shows figuratively, spiritually, what happens to all of us when we get saved. He then gets baptized, so showing externally what's happened to him internally. He's gone from death to life. By the way, some of you need to be baptized. You want to talk about time out, back up a few minutes, the assessment, excuses, the reasons? If you're a believer, there's no reason up to this point. If you know that you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you haven't been baptized, listen, you need to follow the Lord with that step of obedience. What you're doing is you're following Scripture, but you're also giving an incredible announcement to the world that externally this is what's happened to me internally. This is the ordained way God has given us to do that. Well, what happens after that? I want to catch us up with the rest of this um, story, and then I want to give you three quick takeaways, all right? So read with me, beginning in verse 19, because where does, after this happens, scales fall off, where does Saul go from here? Beginning in verse 19b, all right? For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon this name? And he has come, he's not come, uh, here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests, but Saul increased more, all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Things get tough, verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Attempted. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly the name of Jesus the Lord, or the name of the Lord, and spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So after his conversion, he gets baptized. He immediately starts doing what? He immediately starts talking about Jesus. He immediately starts making a big deal about the gospel. He goes from being an enemy of the church to becoming part of it, an active part of it. Of it. And I want to fire off three things, quick things to you, what we learn about salvation right here. Number one is this, real quick. Salvation is a complete miracle of God. This story shows us that salvation is a complete miracle of God. This story illustrates that truth, right? Now, we see some obvious miraculous things here, right? The glorious light. You know, I don't know if that's ever happened in your life. That's never happened in my life. That's not how my salvation story happened. But what I want you to focus on more is some of the, the subtle, equally is glorious details in this encounter. They're miraculous. The whole idea of a man like Saul becoming a Christian does not make sense outside of it being a miracle of God. There's no slow movement of Saul moving towards God. There's, there's not, no, he's not growing up in a Christian home. Jesus doesn't find Saul serving food at like the city rescue mission. There's no warming up to the Christianity thing. He hated everything about it. A man like Saul becoming a believer makes no sense apart from it being a miracle of God. He's run, I mean, he's running in his mind in the opposite of opposite direction of what anything that would even smell like or look like biblical Christianity would, would be like. He's running in the opposite direction. He's literally running into a town to go Christian. And on that pursuit is boom, where he runs in to the grace of God. That's where he collides in a glorious, miraculous, surprising way with the grace of God. So my question is this, in this story, who's confronting who? Who's pursuing who? Who's changing who? Jesus is the one confronting. 
Jesus is the one pursuing. Jesus is the one who's changing him. Jesus is the hero of the story. Right? It's a miracle that God pursues sinners like Saul. It's a miracle that God pursues sinners like us. But is this not the, is this not the story of the Bible? When Adam and Eve sin, and Adam, who is the worst hide-and-go-seek player ever in the history of the world, tries to hide from God, and he's trying to hide... Is it Adam who goes and looks for God? No, it's God who goes and looks for Adam. Abraham, a pagan man out wandering in the desert. Who goes looking for him? God. Jonah, who's running from God as fast as he can and as far as he can. Who pursues who? God pursues him to the point that he goes down into the depths of the sea and puts him in the belly of a fish so that he can capture his heart. Who's pursuing who? As you move into the New Testament, what do we find? Who's still on the hunt looking for spiritually blind, spiritually dead sinners to save? God is. He comes looking for us. We don't go looking for him. Saul may have thought he was looking for him. I mean, Saul thought he was killing it. He thought, he kind of fancied himself as like an Elijah, a prophet in the Old Testament, who when you see idolatry, get it out, get it out of the camp and use force if you have to. That's the way that he viewed what he was doing. And he was blind to the evil and the wickedness that he was inflicting on people in his pursuit of that. He thought he was racking up some serious points on the scoreboard of religion, blind to the truth that he was scoring points for the other team. And the only way a man like that gets sight, the only way a man like that experiences salvation is if a holy God who loves him pursues him and saves him. And the same is true for us. Listen. We do not preach a man-centered gospel here. It is a God-centered gospel. Salvation is a complete work of God. It's a miracle. I mean, we're talking about a rebel here. We're talking about an enemy of God. If they're doing a yearbook superlatives, he is winning, least likely to get saved. If this guy's in your prayer list or on your prayer list or on your prayer board in your small group class, he's there because you're praying for safety from him. He's there because you're praying maybe that some justice will rain down on his head. This is an extremist. This is a terrorist. Probably not a lot of people praying for a salvation. This is not a person you forget to pray about because you just assume they're never going to turn to Jesus but God. Saul's headed in one direction, but God breaks in and performs a miracle of salvation. And this passage reminds us, reminds all of us that we were all spiritually In that same place Saul was, spiritually dead, spiritually blind, in need of a miracle. But listen, it is also a reminder here that no one is ever beyond the reach of God's saving grace. We all have people like Saul in our life. And you just assume, and at this point if you were honest, you're like, yeah, it's probably true. That I've just kind of gotten to the place where I assume they're never going to come to Jesus. Look at Saul. Saul's story is shouting at you, never lose hope for the salvation of that person. Why? Because salvation is a miracle. It's not about them in the end. At the end of the day, it's about the grace of God. And because salvation is a miracle, if Saul can be saved, you can be saved. If Saul can be saved, they can be saved. If Saul can be saved, anybody can be saved. No one is beyond the reach of God's redeeming grace. You may be here this morning and you feel like, man, I, there is no way for me to ever enjoy what you guys talk about here. And I enjoy being here around some nice church people. But as far as me throwing the full weight of my faith, like you've said it, on the finished work of the cross and becoming a Christian, I don't think he'd ever want somebody like me. You don't understand what I've done. You don't understand the thoughts that have come through my mind. You don't understand how badly... I've messed up my life. Look at Saul. The greatness of his sin was not bigger than the cross. Your stuff is not bigger than the cross. I don't care what your sin is. I don't care what it is. Whatever you bring to the table, no matter what that sin looks like, no matter how it's manifested itself, it is not stronger than Jesus. I love that song. Sin was strong. Jesus is stronger. Shame was great. Jesus, you are greater. Is Jesus pursuing you this morning? Listen, you're not here by accident. That conviction you feel because of your sin, that pull you feel, listen, he's calling you. The question is, we answer. Come and experience the miracle of God's radical, transforming, redeeming grace. 
this morning. Second point, very quickly. Salvation is radically transformational. Salvation is radically transformational. Saul of Tarsus was a changed man forever from this point moving forward. Doesn't mean he's a perfect man. He was a changed man. Notice the new person. When Ananias uh, is recruited to lay hands on him, what does he immediately say? No, no, there's no way it makes sense for me to go to him. He's a bad guy. But Jesus says what? No, he is a chosen instrument to carry my name. He's been my enemy. I'm going to make him my ambassador. Watch what I can do. And he gets a new identity. He's chosen by God to be this great instrument for the glory of God to point people to Jesus Christ. So his entire identity has been changed. That's what baptism is doing. It's showing, again, that outward indicator of what's happened on the inside. And we see that fleshed out in verse 20. Immediately, what does he begin to do? And I love that word immediately. It says immediately, what does he begin to do? He begins to preach, and he begins to talk about who, to proclaim the good news of who. That phrase, the Son of God, that is the phrase that boiled his blood three days ago. The Son of God, that was blasphemy. To say anything that would even allude to saying that this Jesus, this this criminal that died on a criminal's cross, named Jesus who's dead in history, to make any remark that would allude to saying that he's the Messiah, son of God. This is the guy who now is running through these towns and running through these villages from synagogue to synagogue talking about the son of God. That name is now on his lips. He's a totally different guy. In those next verses as he's preaching, says a lot of people were shocked, right? They're saying, is this, is this the man who like was coming to, it doesn't make sense in their mind. They're trying to find a compartment for it. Why? Why are they a little confused? Why are they thrown off? Because they see a change. They see a radical change in his life. Saul will go on to write 2 Corinthians 5, 17. One of my favorite verses, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul writes that. And after he writes it, he goes, that's true. Trust me. I know. I'm not the person I once was. Is God's grace changing you? Do you claim to have had a collision with the grace of God? Well, what about your life? Is there, is there change? Being saved means you've been saved from something. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. You're being saved from the power of sin. And one day, you're going to be saved from the presence of sin. Are you being saved from the power of sin? Can you see it in your life? See, we can see the transformative power of sin, can't we? That's easy to see. We don't have any problems grasping that, right? We can see how someone who's sinful, when they get power, it corrupts them and it just gets really ugly, right? You can see how powerful sin, how powerfully sin can change somebody. We can see how the greedy person who is just lost in their sin and just as greedy as all get out, man, you give them more money, it just gets ugly. We can see how sin can transform people. I mean, we can see how the nature of addiction, how that sin can snowball and can create, can cause somebody to become the worst person of their of them, uh, versions of themselves in their sin. We know how powerful sin is. And here's where I'm going with this. If sin is that powerful, and we know how powerful it is, and yet it was created by a fallen angel named Lucifer, who, when it's all said and done, will be flicked by a holy God into a lake of fire and won't put up much of a fight. If sin is that powerful, how much more so is the grace of God powerful? When someone comes to faith in Christ, they become a new creature. And that's powerful. And that's a, that's a promise right there. And that's a challenge for you to ask the question, am I new? If I'm new, it will start showing up. Fruit will start being produced. Remember, you're saved by grace alone. But listen, saving grace is never alone. And I'm not just trying to get everybody to doubt their salvation this morning. I'm just trying to get you to get honest with yourself. It's not about being perfect. But let me ask you, is your sensitive sensitivity to sin growing? Is your appetite for the things of God continuing to grow? Because salvation's transformational. The second thing is transforms your life in this way. You get a new family. So not only do you get a new life, you get a new family. I love in verse 17, Ananias says, brother. He's been there for three days. He hadn't eat, ate anything. He's Hadn't drank anything. He's there probably feeling really, really hopeless. And Ananias comes in and lays his hands on him and says, Brother Saul. You know, he's understanding that not only is he getting a new life, not only is he getting a new vision for his life, not only is he getting a new purpose, not only is he getting a new identity, a new start, he's getting a new family. In verse 19, it says that he was with the other disciples. So he's starting to go to church with them. Right? They had to be an interesting experience for those disciples. 
The very people that he was going there to kill, he's like showing up in church with them, like learning the songs. That's amazing. Like he's on his way to Damascus to kill disciples and to kill Christians. And he gets there and now the tables have turned and now he's in those places of worship learning the songs. Like what's this one? I haven't heard this one before. He's learning about the different elements of worship. So he's like walking in like he's never had the Lord's Supper before. He's learning what that is. And so they get to that part in the service, and he's like, that's what that juice was for. I thought that was complimentary juice that they handed out at the door. I drank that already and had bread, had a little snack during the sermon. He's totally ignorant to a lot of these things. He's learning. And can you imagine, just imagine how awkward maybe some of the fellowship times were in those first few weeks. In, those, in the early church, a lot, of, a lot of the time they would meet every day, and they would always eat after the service, right? So the, the potluck after every service, potluck dinner. And so can you imagine how awkward that was? Like in verse 26, it says, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they're all afraid of him. Can you imagine how awkward that was when he showed up at the welcome desk that first day at church? And then at the potluck, he walks in with his dish. You know, yeah, who made the macaroni and cheese? So I was like, I did, I did. I, I don't, let's not eat that. Kids stay away from the macaroni and cheese. He's smiling kind of weird. He's thinking, poison the craft. I'm not sure if like Jesus has really got a hold of him. Is he trying to trick us? Is he getting in here trying to hurt us from the inside? Family, he, what he learns this, he learns this though. Family isn't easy, is it? Family's not easy. He learns that quickly, but Barnabas steps in. Good old Barnabas. Barnabas steps in, takes a step towards somebody like a Saul. We need to continue to be a church who stepped towards Sauls, who stepped towards people who may not have it all together, who may not understand how it all is all supposed to work. And we need to step towards them with the grace and the love that we see in Barnabas who takes him under his wing just for just a moment and says, tell me about it. Okay, Damascus Road, glorious light, Jesus, you saw him there. And, and all of a sudden, Barnabas is like, you got it, man. You're, part of, you're one of us, aren't you? And he vouches for him and he takes him to the rest of the disciples and he says, listen, trust me. And they trusted Barnabas. They said, you can trust this guy. Listen, only God can do this. Only God in the gospel can take natural-born enemies like this and reconcile people to himself and to each other. We get a new life, we get a new family, but we also, we're kind of in it right here, but we get new problems. And it gets more problematic than just a little bit of awkwardness at the potluck dinner. That's what he does in the gospel. He gives us a new identity, he gives us a new life, a new family, but he also gives us new problems. And that's something that we don't like to talk about in the West. We have a problem with that. Like Paul's life, if you put it in a book, is this really going to fly off the shelves at Walmart? When you begin right here at the beginning to realize the first line that he it gets delivered about his life to Ananias, it says, I must show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Paul begins to move out into his journey and he realizes very quickly from the very beginning as people are plotting to kill him as he's first trying to advance the gospel that following Jesus isn't always easy. Following Jesus is always awesome. It's, 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 there's, there's amazing parts to it. We get eternal life. We get indescribable joy. We get satisfaction. We get forgiveness, but make no mistake, God never promises us that it'll always be easy. In fact, he promises us that we're going to walk through trials and that there's going to be bad days and there's going to be bad weeks and there's going to be bad years, but he promises us that he'll use those in his sovereign plan to shape us and mold us to look more like Jesus Christ. And he also promises us that no matter how bad it gets, his grace will be sufficient always. Third thing is this, very quickly. Salvation is ultimately not about me. So he learns that salvation is a miracle. We learn that salvation is transformational. And we learn that salvation is ultimately not about me. So he goes from persecuting Christ to immediately proclaiming Christ. Do you see how that works? I love how in, listen to how Luke transitions from Paul's personal story. So it's all about Paul. It's all about Saul. But notice he carefully ends this section here in verse 31. He says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it multiplied. So why, why are they experiencing peace right there? Well, a big reason why they're experiencing peace is because the person who was causing so much unrest is now saved. 
So that, that helps create a lot of peace. But I believe the reason for this transition right here in a story that we love, we love that this, how this lays out this incredible gospel collision in the life of the Apostle Paul. It reminds us of this truth. Listen, as big as this conversion story feels, it is a small story that's part of a bigger story. He is not the star of the story. Paul is not the star of Acts. It's all about Jesus. He's simply a piece in the puzzle. He has simply laid down his life as an instrument in the sovereign hands of his Lord, as we see in verse 15. And he spends the rest of his life leveraging all of his talents and his abilities in his life for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. Think about that. Think about how hard he works. Think about how passionate he is. Think about how obsessed he is with the gospel and its advancements. Those are all... Those were all parts of his personality before he got saved. God just redeemed him and is now using him for a better purpose. Everything that defined his life before, hardworking, passionate, driven, type A personality, that didn't just go away. God redeems it and uses it for his glory, for his movement, for planting hundreds of churches across the known world for something bigger than himself. And he'll do the same thing for you. He's a God who redeems. He goes on to even use Saul's failures. Because as we move through the rest of his letters, as we see him writing to these churches and encouraging them, he doesn't hold back on how sinful he was. He's very open with it. And see, God will redeem that part of your past as well. It doesn't mean we celebrate sin. It just means that for some of you, you need to realize that some of the most effective gospel-centered addiction counselors are people who have walked through that mess. And God redeems it. And you leverage it for a new purpose for the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, all of us are called to do this. All of us are called to leverage our life for the glory of Christ. And I I want to say this like Paul, but I want to say none of us are going to be like Paul. None of us are going to write a letter that's going to end up in the canon of Scripture. It's not going to happen. But we all have a role. We're all called to lay our lives into the hands of a sovereign Lord as his instrument, realizing it's not about me. It is about it is personal. It is about me in that I get my sins washed away. I get to experience forgiveness. God is for me. He's just not all about me. It's about something bigger than me. I'm part of a bigger story. I'm part of a bigger mission. And he wants our salvation to impact more than just us. Let me ask you this morning. Have you experienced the miracle of salvation. First question. You're here this morning. Have you experienced the miracle of salvation? It can happen when you're seven. It can happen when you're 77. Has that happened? If it hasn't happened, be saved this morning. What's, what's stopping you? If the Holy Spirit's drawing you, why don't you just cry uncle? Say, God, here I am. And surrender your life to him. And believer, let me ask you this. As you look at this amazing story. Have you forgotten that the key to your effectiveness today in the kingdom. Is tied to how deeply you're growing in your understanding. Of what happened on your road to Damascus. In your road to Damascus moment. And you not getting over what Jesus did on the cross to forgive you of your sins. And then coming along and raising you to new life. Paul never got over what happened to him. He just kept talking about it. He never got over it. And what Acts 9 does for us as believers is it reminds us that we never stop looking back and remembering what God has done through us through Christ Jesus. And as we think about what he's done for us on the cross, what we think about what is ours because of the resurrection, what we think about what is ours because he came and pursued us and saved us. When we think about that, that is what throws wood on the fire of evangelism in our life. That is what throws wood on the fire of worship in our life. That is what throws wood on our, on our fire to pray for people who are lost. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the ultimate test of spirituality. Spirituality is our amazement at the grace of God. Paul never gets over it. And this amazing thing happens. It's, he gets to the end of his life and it says in 1 Timothy 1.15, it says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. He, he writes at the end of his life. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. He's, you would think he would say, I've, you know, 
I've gotten a little better at this thing. Maybe I'm less sinful than I was at the beginning of this journey. No, because he's understood this. That when you look at the cross, here's what happens. As you mature in your faith, here's what happens. As you look at the cross, here's what happens. You more and more realize how much of a sinner that you truly are. You more and more realize just how holy God is. And as you grow and mature in your faith and look at the cross, those two things and those realities get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that chasm keeps stretching further and further and further. That's why he's saying here at the end of his life, I'm the chief of sinners. The more I look at the cross, the more I, I realize more, more how, how, how deeply of a sinner I am more than I did when this thing first started. He realized how great of a sinner he is, how great... God's holiness is how great this chasm is between those two things and how, as he looks at it, the cross still bridges the divide. And he can't get over it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. That's the reason we can sing songs like that. Let's pray. This morning, if you are somebody who's lost, you need to be saved. I hope the gospel has been clear to you this morning. It's simply about admitting that you're a sinner, admitting that your sins are separating you from a holy God, and believing that Jesus Christ came to live the life you can't live and died the death on the cross that you deserve to die and rose from the dead. And if you're there this morning... Trust in him as your Lord and Savior. Experience the miracle of salvation. I'll be down front. I would love to talk to you if you're taking that step of faith this morning. And for those of us who are believers, look to the cross. Remember the miracle of your salvation this morning. And may your heart be filled afresh once again with the joy of your salvation. It never gets old. It never gets old.